All right, Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Here's what we're going to do. Over the next, I believe, 14 weeks or so, we are going to go through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, you know that that's going to be a tall task uh, to be able to do it in that few. Anyone read the Martin Lloyd-Jones book before? It's about that thick, right? There's a lot of ways you could study the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to do our best to give you a taste of it, but there is much, much more uh, to be gained. And so I think, I don't see it out this morning, but I think uh, in the coming weeks, we'll have some materials out that are, you could get in our bookstore that could help you if you want to read more as we study, uh, kind of some suggested commentaries and, and different uh, books you could read, including Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, uh, that would be a great help as you kind of dive into this together. Uh, but this morning, what we're going to do is this. We're going to start these next two weeks with the Beatitudes, and then from the Beatitudes, we'll kind of wind our way through the entire Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it's going to be an an amazing time. As always, we're going to be recording this. And so if you happen to miss a week, you can hear that. But again, the most important part of this study is to do it together in your group. And so do your best to try to be here and be able to participate with one another. All right, so here's how we're going to begin. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you make the choices that you make? Why do you live the way that you live? Like uh, many Americans last night, I turned on CNN to watch the Iowa caucus results come in. I love the caucus system. I think it's amazing. There's something endearing about a bunch of people getting together as a community and literally putting pieces of paper into a bucket to choose the president, right? It's amazing. I love it. It's like, man, this is the way it should always be. Um, just, there's something very beautiful about that. And so watching these results go in, obviously they're also doing polls, right? Polling is fascinating too. And one of the driving questions that they asked, what made people choose the person they picked, was this question, does this candidate share my values? Does this candidate share my values? What are your values? Where do they come from? What are your set of morals, your set of ideals? What drives you to do the things that you do in life? Deep down, the thing that makes us act the thing that makes us have ethics, the things that enable us to make the choices that we make deep down, it's all because of one thing. We want to be happy. Deep down, you just want to be happy. About 350 years before Christ was born, a Greek philosopher named Aristotle, you've heard of him? He wrote the Nicomachean Ethics. This set of ethics that became incredibly influential for all of Western thought. And this is what Aristotle said. He said, the function of man is to live a certain way. The function of man is to live a certain life. And a good man, Aristotle says, a good man is the man who lives according to those principles. So a good man is the man who lives well according to the set of principles that he has. And then he says this. He says, if this is the case, happiness, happiness, turns out to be an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. All right, well, what does that mean? Aristotle basically argues in many, many pages that happiness is the ultimate of human existence. Happiness is the driver of all of our actions. Happiness drives our virtue. It drives our ethics. And this idea that happiness 
would be the thing that dictates everything that we do in life would become incredibly influential for all of Western thought. So another philosopher, a philosopher named John Locke, he put it this way many years later, the necessity of pursuing happiness is the foundation of liberty, Locke says. The stronger ties that we have to this unalterable pursuit of happiness. He went on to say this, that the more we are free from any necessary determination of our will to any particular action. In other words, we are free to act and do what we want in so much as we are able to pursue happiness. And this idea obviously influenced another political philosopher, a philosopher named Thomas Jefferson, who wrote it this way. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All of us have a vision of happiness that drives the things that we do. The question is, where does your vision for happiness come from? What is it, and where does it come from? And this morning, if you're saying, okay, Paul, I'm kind of with you. It's kind of early. <laughs> it's a lot of philosophy to quote this early in the morning. If you're trying to figure out, okay, what is, what is this idea, this vision of happiness? You can think of it like this. It's also called the good life. What's your vision of the good life? This thing that you are striving to attain, this vision of a good life, that if you could just attain it, if you could have it, if your life could look this way, that thing, whatever that vision is, is the reason why you do everything that you do. That vision of the good life, as Jamie Smith calls it, that we are not governed by kind of a set of morals primarily, but those morals are actually driven by a deeper desire to have this happiness, this good life. And so this morning as we dive into the Sermon on the Mount, we need to recognize something. That what Jesus is after in this sermon greatest sermon ever preached. He's not just trying to give us a new radical set of Christian morals. He's not going to come after the way that you live just head on. He's not trying to radically just change your ethics. He's going to radically go after your vision of happiness. He's going to radically go after your vision of what the good life is. And he's going to give you, he's going to call you, to completely reimagine what you think happiness is at all. That it's not the good life that we were created to pursue, but it's the kingdom life. Something completely different. Not the kingdom of yourself, but the kingdom of God. And in so much that you are pursuing the kingdom of God, you are now going to be truly happy. And so this morning, as we open up the Sermon on the Mount, it's interesting as we begin with the Beatitudes that Jesus begins by calling us to reimagine happiness. It begins this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word blessed in the Greek, makarios, literally means happy. So you could read the Beatitudes this way. Happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. That's how radical that sounds. Happy are the poor. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is not this treatise of, of morals, of Christian norms, of Christian ethics. It's not a set 
of rules that Jesus has given us as his people to follow, it is a vision of what the kingdom life is all about. A reimagination of what truly is going to make us happy, of what happiness really is. Not when you're pursuing the kingdom of self, but when you are pursuing the kingdom of God. And so for our study, kind of the main verse that we believe kind of links all of this together is right here on this banner, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Seek first the kingdom of God. And to begin, this morning, we'll look at the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, eight different marks of what the kingdom life looks like. The first four in our relation to God, that's what we're going to look at this morning very briefly. The last four in our relation to people, our relation to others. In every single one, we'll see that these marks are a call to completely and radically change the way we think about life. Not what we do, but what we're after, what we're seeking. Seeking not the kingdom of self, but the kingdom of God. And this kingdom life is marked in four ways very quickly, and then we'll send you to your tables this morning to dive in. The first is this. The kingdom life is marked by spiritual poverty. The kingdom life is marked by spiritual poverty. Second, the kingdom life is marked by mournful repentance. Mournful repentance. Third, the kingdom life is marked by humility. And fourth, lastly this morning, the kingdom life is marked by holy hunger. These four marks, these four qualities, these four characteristics describe the person, the man, who is seeking first the kingdom. So much so that it has completely changed their vision of the good life, their vision of happiness, what they're after, what they're seeking. They describe the man who is seeking first the kingdom of God. The first mark of this, of the kingdom life, is this. It's spiritual poverty, and this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this idea of poor, especially in the Old Testament, is a, it's a technical term. And the poor in the Old Testament were not necessarily poor, materially speaking, <clears throat> but, but they were poor of a different kind. And it's what we see all over the Psalms, especially Psalm 34, 6. The poor man cried, the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. Psalm 40, as for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You see this in the prophets, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord upon me. We read this a lot of times at Christmas. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. The idea of poverty, poverty of spirit, is the idea of utter dependence on God. That if we can learn something, from those who are materially poor. It's that they are needy people, completely dependent on others. For you to be poor in spirit is to recognize your spiritual bankruptcy. That spiritually speaking, your soul is utterly dependent on another. There is nothing that you have, nothing that you possess that can make you worthy or rich or wealthy in the eyes of God. You are completely spiritually bankrupt. And until you recognize that, you cannot begin to understand what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. 
You must first recognize, Jesus says, that you are poor in spirit, and only when you understand that you are poor in spirit, that you are plagued by a spiritual poverty that you cannot overcome yourself, then maybe you can begin to understand what it means to even be happy. Because happiness is found in the only one who can get you out of that mess. The greatest example of this in Jesus' teaching is a parable. A parable of the two sons. The prodigal son. Right? And so here's Luke 15. And Jesus says that there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey to the far country, and he squandered his property on reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to be one of the citizens of the country to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods and the pigs, and he, no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Do you recognize your poverty? Your spiritual dependence? Have you reached a place like the prodigal son where you recognize that you are in utter need and that you are so needy that all you can do is to run back to the arms of God and say, I have sinned against you and I'm not even worthy to be called one of your sons? Do you recognize that? Have you reached that point? Because Jesus is calling us to this radical vision that only when you recognize that you are lowly can you begin to seek first the kingdom of God. It's the first. The kingdom life is marked by spiritual poverty. Second, the kingdom life is marked by mournful repentance. Mournful repentance. Matthew 5 verse 4, the second of the attitudes, Jesus says, Blessed or happy are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. See, if you read it with the word happy instead, how radical this is. Happy are those who mourn. It makes no sense to us. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, what kind of mourning is Jesus talking about? Again, much like the poverty idea, he's not talking about material poverty, although he says elsewhere that those things are, can be connected. But he's also talking about not just sadness or mourning, but a particular kind of mourning, the kind of mourning, the kind of weeping, the kind of sorrow that comes with repentance. And the best place that you could go to, I think, to really begin to understand what this looks like is the very passage that Chad preached on this past Sunday. James. James 4, verse 8. James says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do you mourn over your sin? Are you sorrowful over your sin? 
to the point where James says that you would be wretched and mourn and weep. I tell people all the time I'm essentially dead inside. I don't cry about anything. Like the last time I really cried was at our wedding. My wife cries at literally everything. Every, seriously, everything. And, and so does my father-in-law. My father-in-law is a very strong man. Uh, but, man, he's tender. Um, sorry, Jim, if you're ever going to listen to this. Um, and, um, and so they were the whole time talking about, well, hey, we got to keep it together. If you start crying, I'm going to start crying. And, of course, I'm like, I'm fine. They, not a tear was shed from then. From the very first song on our wedding, I cried like a baby the whole time. And you think about crying as this kind of, when you start crying, and especially as men, uh, you can't control it. I mean, because if you have any control, right, you're not, you're not going to choose, well, I'm just going to let this go, <laughs> right? Uh, you're, you're trying to hold it back as best you can. So when that crying actually comes, I mean, it's, it's truly uncontrollable, especially for us as men. I mean, you're, it's, it's from this deep, deep place, whether it be this overwhelming feeling of, love or being loved or sorrow. When is the last time you really cried? I'm asking myself this question this morning. I'm not just asking you. Were you really were mournful over your sin? Jesus says, blessed is the one who mourns. Happy is the one who mourns. Happy is the one who truly understands the grievousness of their sin, the heinousness, the sorrow of their sin. I'm struck by um, the Gospels, particularly Luke, where Jesus is carrying the cross and he can't carry it anymore. And so Simon picks it up. And as he's going to Golgotha, he, I don't know how he must have done this. He, he's bleeding. He's exhausted. He can't even carry the cross, and yet he has the strength to look up and see some women crying crying because Jesus is going to the cross. And he looks up at them. And can you imagine this? Bloody and beaten. Jesus, and you're crying because he's dying. And Jesus looks at you, and this is what he says. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourself and weep for your children. Wow. Here you are mourning over the death of Christ and this man who is dying. Blood dripping down his face looks at you and says, don't cry for me. Cry for yourself. Why? Because I am dying for you. For your sin. You need to mourn over your sin, Jesus saying. Don't cry for me. Cry for you. Because I'm going to be sacrificed right now in this moment for you, for your sin. Jesus says, blessed is the one who mourns. When is the last time you truly, truly had sorrow? And in that sorrow, you truly repented. Because I believe this is why later in the book of Revelation, when we, we hear the new heavens and the new earth described and Jesus returns, why it says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's not just the sadness that we experience in life, the disappointment, the failure, but the, the tears that are going to be wiped from our eyes, the tears of repentance, the sorrow over our sin, because we're going to be made new. Happy, blessed is the man who mourns. The kingdom life is marked by mournful repentance. Third, the kingdom life is marked by humility. Look with me, Matthew 5, verse 5. 
Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Hopefully by now you're recognizing, okay, this is not the vision of most people have when they think of the good life. Poverty of spirit, the mournful, and the meek. When people have asked you, what, what drives you as a man? How many of you would say meekness? <laughs> I said, I, I haven't, uh, on, yeah. I mean, how, how many of, uh, have you seen, you know, those inspirational posters, you know, like you'd see on, at Dunder Mifflin on the wall, and there's like a whale, and it says, but you, you don't see one that says meekness, right? <laughs> Happy, blessed is the meek, Jesus says. And not only that, he says, but they will inherit the earth. That goes against everything that we believe as a society, right? It, it's, the meek doesn't inherit the earth. No, it's the proud, right? The strong, the able, the one who has it all together. It's by strength that we've always conquered, right? The man who is, man, you just see, you want to be that kind of man. Why? Because he's going to inherit the earth. He's going to conquer. He's going to dominate He's going to crush it. And yet here we are, and Jesus says, blessed, happy is the meek. And this idea even coming from the Old Testament itself as well, Psalm 37, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. You see, you cannot pursue the kingdom of God if you're pursuing the, your own kingdom, the kingdom of yourself. And it's only when your pride dies at the altar of Jesus Christ that you truly begin to see that you are humble, humble before him, like Isaiah, wretched a man that I am, a man of unclean lips. It's only in that moment of true humility before God himself that in that moment of meekness, you can seek first the kingdom of God. My favorite definition of humility is this. It's Andrew Murray. If you've ever read his book on humility, I've highly recommend it. It is phenomenal. And this is his definition. He says, humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. In other words, you just can't make yourself more humble. The path to humility is this, that you would have a greater vision of God. And the more that he is enthroned in your life, the more humble you become. All right? Just like Isaiah. The greater vision you have of God, the lesser vision you have of yourself. You can't help but just bow on your knees and recognize, I am nothing. I am nothing. This meekness, what does it look like to be a man who's strong in humility, a man who's strong in meekness? Where you could honestly say with the hymn writer, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, I come to thee for dress. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That there is nothing that we can possibly have or possess. There's nothing that we can bring to the cross. We are meek. We are humble before him. Last thing, and then you'll go to your table this morning. The kingdom life is marked by holy hunger. Jesus says this, verse 6, the fourth beatitude, blessed Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So Jesus' vision of the kingdom life, his vision, radical vision of the good life is this. Poverty, right? Mournful, meek, and hungry. 
A particular kind of hunger, though, Jesus is after. A hunger and a thirst for righteousness. So as we end this morning, I ask you this, what are you hungry for? What do you desire most out of life? Are you hunger? Do you hunger? Do you pine? Do you desire? Are you hungry? Are you thirsty for righteousness? Do you, do you want to be holy? Most basic way I could ask it. Do you want to be holy? Do you desire that above any other thing? Is that what makes you hungry? Because the gospel not only satisfies our hunger, as Jesus says, only in the gospel, right? Only in pursuing the kingdom and we'll be satisfied, but also satiates our hunger for holiness. John Piper puts it this way. I love this. He says, you might think that those who feast most often in communion with God are the least hungry. But paradoxically, paradoxically, it's not so. The opposite is the case. The strongest, most mature Christians I've ever met are the hungriest for God. When you take your stand on the finished work of God in Christ and begin to drink at the river of life and eat the bread of heaven, you know that you have found the end of all your longings. I love that. When you feast at the inexhaustible feast of God, not only are you satisfied, but you want more. You can't get enough. Kind of like in that moment, this last weekend, I smoked my first brisket, and it was pretty good. I learned some things, though. I ate way too much food that day. I mean, you're sitting there cooking, and you're, eat, I mean, you're just eating, and by the end of the day, I felt terrible, right? I probably reached the point of being satisfied and hunger about noon, and yet ate the rest of the day. You know, it's that moment where you taste an amazing steak and you don't want really any more to fill you up, but you just can't help but eat and eat and eat, right? The hunger for God, the desire for holiness, the desire for righteousness is this thing that at once it's both, this is so satisfying. That's what I was created to be, what I created to consume, and I can't get enough. Jesus says, happy, blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, and as Paul tells us over and over again, the kind of righteousness that you cannot attain yourself, it is only the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who he himself said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever feasts on me will never be hungry. Is Christ your bread? Is he who you're hungry for? He who you're after? As you go to your tables this morning, I want you to think deeply about why you do the things you do and where it comes from and what Jesus is calling us to completely turn upside down. We are called not to pursue the kingdom of self, but pursue, seek first the kingdom of God. And when we do so, our understanding of what happiness really is, is completely flipped upside down. Let me pray and send you to your tables. Father, we thank you for this great, great sermon. Lord, thank you. That Matthew has written it down for us that we could come and we ourselves could come and feast. We pray, God, for our discussions now at our tables, Lord, that you would use our time together as men in your word to change us, that we would leave this place a little bit more transformed and conformed in the image of your Son. We ask this in his name. Amen.